You're listening to the best of the day. I say you the, you the best. Halford and Bruff. <laughs> Welcome back to Halford and Bruff here on Sportsnet 650 with Jamie Dodd and Randy Janda. Halford and Bruff brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We're live from the Kintech studio. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. It is an Ask Us Anything Friday, so uh, keep hitting us up with your Ask Us Anything questions, and you can send in your What We Learned submissions as well. But now joining us, he covers the NHL for The Athletic, and you can follow him on Twitter, if you don't already, for some reason, at DownGoesBrown. Uh, he is Sean McIndoe. Sean, thanks for doing this. How are you? Hey, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. And I did want to start uh, by asking, I know you got to design yesterday's Puckdoku puzzle. I believe it was yesterday. It all runs together right now. But, uh, it, I mean, I do feel like just, you know, reading your work and following you on Twitter that Puckdoku was, like, designed in a lab for you specifically. So this must have been a big yeah. thrill for you to get to, to step in and take part in it. It, it. it was very, very exciting. I went with the uh, old-school Norris division uh, which was great. Great for two reasons, because number one, it, it let me uh, sort of pay tribute to the, the generation that I grew up watching and, and some of those players. And more importantly, uh, it annoyed a whole bunch of young people uh, because they couldn't think of anybody who had ever had 200 penalty minutes in a season. They were very mad that that was too difficult. Uh, and, uh, you know, of course, uh, the answer uh, is just anyone who played in the 80s. There, there's your 200 penalty minute guy. Absolutely everybody who played a season in the 1980s. So uh, that's the uh, spoiler for any of you kids out there that were confused by that one. And shout out to a uh, creator of Puckdoku as well, Taylor, who's a Sportsnet 650 listener. Uh, didn't, just, you know, did a great job of, of creating and giving us something to do in the summertime. I got to ask you though, Sean, what's the, uh, the lowest uniqueness story, score you've been able to, to generate this summer thus far? I, I have got single digits. Uh, okay. I did uh, that. That was my goal. I declared it. And look, I'm one of these people. I don't. I don't tell anyone how to play. You, you do it however you want to do it. But I'm. I'm a strict uh, no research guy. Uh, you got to live and die with your guesses. You. You. You put the name in there. There's no going on uh, hockey reference or hockey DB or anything like that. And double checking and just making sure. Uh, I see some people out there who get the uh, the straight zero across the board. Uh, that's cool too. If you want to do it that way, there's no way they're doing that off the top of their head. No, I no. feel pretty confident saying no. that, but, uh, it's, uh, yeah, you, you gotta, uh, you gotta aim as low as possible is, uh, is the way that I, I approach it. And I did get into the single digits one day. I was pretty proud of that one. Okay. I'm jealous. I got 10. Like that, I, and I thought I was doing amazing single digits. Very, very nice. Very impressive, Sean. As I said, You're right the, there, man. The, You're the... right on the cut. <laughs> uh, you know, little little extra research, and uh, you know, getting uh, hit in the library, and you'll you'll be all there. All right, all right. I'm going to work towards that. You're like a bit. golfer trying to break 80 for the first time. Exactly. You're so you're so close to doing it. Um, you had a great piece up at the Athletic yesterday, Sean. Five truths all NHL fan bases need to hear this off season. And uh, you know, we wanted to bring you on to, just to to confirm that this wasn't specifically directed at Canucks fans. No, it wasn't. And you know, that's the amazing thing. How many people have uh, responded to that by uh, you know, saying that they. Uh, uh, they, they were pretty sure they knew 
which fan base I was actually talking about. And, and no, that's not the whole point of the thing is this is for every fan base. I feel very safe generalizing across the board because this stuff that uh, just about everybody is, uh, is guilty of in, in some form or another, some more than others. Maybe uh, you know uh, that that is potentially true, but uh, no, I I, I was uh, cast in a pretty wide net on this one. All right, I I gotta say though, it feels like you know Vancouver versus like a Carolina, right? When it comes to <laughs> uh, to the degrees of the th- the conspiracy theorists, I feel like Vancouver skews the the higher number just based on the fact that um, part of this is probably going back to 2011 for a lot of Canucks fans, right? A very unique team had a certain character that maybe wasn't well-liked across the league, but you're telling me, you're telling me other markets feel strongly about their guys and feel like at times that the uh, there's a, a bit of a conspiracy against them, even like refs or player safety. Is that is that common across the league? There, there is. Uh, that is absolutely common across the league. There is. Everybody out there feels like... Somehow this league is out to get them, and it's you know very often it's it's it might be the referees in general. It might be a specific referee that they might point to and say, well, you know, our record when this guy officiates is uh, is is not a very good record. Clearly, he's out to get us. Uh, it it may be the Department of Player Safety. It could be Gary Bettman himself, uh, and uh, you know, people are are very convinced that somewhere along the line the league is is putting a thumb on the scale either against their team or in some cases at the very least they need you to acknowledge that 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 obviously this league is in favor of some teams it has some of its mm. favorite teams and if you're playing against that team you've got no chance because clearly uh, what happens is during the uh, intermission, Gary Bettman gets on the phone and calls up the referees and says, "Hey, look, uh, we got to make sure that my favorite team wins tonight. So I need you to like let uh, a borderline hooking call go uh, late in the third period, and then uh, that that fan base will see that, latch onto it, and that'll become the uh, the proof of the conspiracy." Uh, it's pretty much universal across the board. Everybody feels that way, and everybody's wrong. Like I say in the piece, there are no conspiracies. The league is not doing that. And the reason I say that is not because I think that they're wonderful, great people with uh, unreproachable morals. It's that I look at these guys and I go, do do we really think anyone in leadership in the NHL is capable of pulling off a conspiracy? (laughs) Do we really think that? These guys guys had to cancel an outdoor game because it was sunny during the day and it just hadn't occurred to to them that that could happen. You're telling me they're pulling off shadowy conspiracies in the darkness. I I don't think it, I yeah. don't think it's happening. And I mean, and keeping it secret at that. And my my favorite example of, and it's not the about the league being out to get a certain team, but as you said, you know, putting the thumb on the scale for a team is the idea that Edmonton only won all those draft lotteries with you know NHL interference. Because of course, if Gary Bettman could choose any team to draft yeah. Connor McDavid, it would have been the Edmonton Oilers, obviously. Just a huge. I mean, obviously, giving him Nail Yakupov was just the test case, right? That was just. <laughs> <laughs> proof of concept, make sure they could get away with it. And then they all sat around and said, all right, here's a once-in-a-generation talent, has the potential to generate hundreds of millions of dollars, really redefine how the league is viewed. What market should we put him in? And, and of course, all the hands shot up, and everyone said, it's got to be Edmonton. And so they, they definitely made it happen. That, that absolutely did happen, and it's a very good thinking by everyone who's figured it out. Okay, one of the the additions you had on this list is one of my favorite because in any sport, especially, we'll hear about, oh yeah, 
You go to Seattle, they have the loudest fans in the league in the NFL. You go to Vegas, it's the loudest arena in the NHL. Minnesota, XL Energy Center back in the day. Loud. Is that a thing? <laughs> According to your list, it's not a thing. <laughs> it's, I mean, look, it, it's a thing in the sense that there certainly are some arenas that, that get very loud. Uh, there are, are some, and I, and I, I guess... If you were going to figure out a way to rank them somehow, there there would have to be one that was actually the loudest in the league. But the the reality is, I would say there's roughly 20 to 25 markets that are utterly convinced that they are the loudest in the NHL. And the reason they're convinced of that is because they saw somebody say it once. You know, somebody, some some national writer made reference to it, or Hockey Night Canada. You know, they held up the little decibel meter that one time. Uh, you know, somebody asked a visiting team player or coach, and like, hey, fans are loud here. And the, the person was like, yeah, yeah, sure, they're loud. And they just latched onto that. And, um, and the reality is, in most cases, it's like, yeah, you're, sometimes you're loud, sometimes you're not. And, yeah, you're loud in the playoffs. That's usually when it comes up, right? It's the first round, especially if it's a non-traditional market or a market that maybe isn't really associated with being all that loud or, or, or being a great hockey market, and then it's game one of the playoffs, and it's, oh, man, it's so loud in here. And you're sitting there at home going, yeah, you're supposed to be loud. It's, it's the playoffs. You're, you're supposed to be cheering. And, uh, yeah, yeah, your team won in overtime. Yeah, the, the building got really loud. We, we expect that. Uh, and then when your team loses, the building is not so loud. That's kind of how it is in just about everywhere. So, uh, look, man, I, I love a loud building. Uh, I, uh, you know, I love seeing that. But uh, it, let's, let's maybe, maybe dial it down just a little bit on the whole loudest fans in the league or the most loyal fans is another one where the best fans out there, just because that one-star player retired and said you were the best fans, like he, he was being nice. He didn't – he wasn't necessarily – uh, meaning that quite literally. So, uh, you know, maybe just maybe just ease up just a little bit on it, the whole we're the best fans in the whole world. It is. Uh, it, it's an interesting kind of pressure point for fans because the, the one time I can remember uh, a current player, at least, or at least the most recent time, saying that fans weren't necessarily that loud was Bo Horvat when he went to the Islanders talking about Canucks fans. And let me tell you, that was not particularly well received out here. I'll tell so you that something, for free. Yeah, I'll tell you that for free. There's something about, there's something about the, uh, the noise level of a fan base that, uh, that fans are very, very invested in. Yeah, and it, and it made headlines everywhere because we were so shocked yeah. that he didn't do the thing that everybody else does, right? Like some dude gets traded away from Columbus and like has to take out the ad in the newspaper and says, like, oh, I'm going to miss the best fans in the whole league. And, you know, it's, it's fine. It's, you know, people are being nice. This is, this is what you're supposed to do. Um, but, uh, you know, the people who take that and go, wow, I get, we really are the best. And then they show up on Twitter and they get in an argument with like some Carolina fan who's like, no, no, we're the loudest. Uh, somebody said that about us in 2006 and, uh, on and on you go around and around. Uh, one of the other items on the list was basically that uh, every fan base is constantly overrating their prospects and young players. And you know, if you ever um, if you're ever hard up for something to do and looking to kill some time, and you find uh, your team's message board and go back to posts like five years ago and look at the lineups that people were projecting that have like eight or ten prospects, and they're like, "Hey, in five years, all these guys are going to be in our lineup." And look at where those players are now, and they are not in an NHL lineup shot. They are not. And and look, this is. This is across the board in the NHL. I, I'm sure it's across the board probably in all sports. There's, there's even a term for it. It's prospect brain, uh, which is a condition that, uh, <laughs> that you see very often uh, infecting sports fans. And, and it's a very simple thing. What happens is 
your your team has these prospects. It's the guys they drafted this year. It's the guys down the AHL. Guys are still in junior. They're in Europe. Wherever it is, and if you're if you're a fan, you're probably reading up on them. You're you're digesting the the comparables and and all of that stuff. And what you end up happening is is you you start forming a model in your mind of like who these guys are going to be. But the the mistake you make is you start thinking about the ceiling for each guy. What's the best player that this guy could end up being? And then at some point in your mind, that kind of twists over to this is just what they will be. Like if all of our prospects hit, if every one of our prospects reaches their ceiling, we're all set, man. We're going to have a great team in a few years. And, of course, it doesn't end up being that way because that's not how prospects work. Some of them hit the ceiling. Some of them don't. Some of them end up being busts. And you're right. I mean, anything looking ahead, uh, trying to project a roster three or five years down the line, uh, and a lot of times fans get very upset. If you say, you know, the future isn't bright in Team X, uh, they get very mad because they say, well, you obviously don't know that we've got this guy and this guy and this guy. And it's like, yeah, you you do have those guys, but the chances that all of them will turn into superstars is, is quite low. And the projected lineups are very funny. My, my personal favorite is if you can go back and find any trade rumors from like five years ago where some star player was on the trade block, and if your team was associated with them, and go and find the rumors of the prospects that you would have been giving up and the fans who were just furious. <laughs> we abs- Are you kidding? You want us to give up Joe Smith, our, our top prospect, for this guy, and they should have to give us more the, just to get him. And, of course, now Joe Smith is like a 40-point AHL guy because that's that's just how it works. But, uh, boy, the, the prospects when it comes to trade talk, oh, I mean, it's you, you would think you were asking for bars of solid goal out of these teams because uh, those, they, they do not want to part with anybody up until a few years later where they realize the guy's a bum and then they can't wait to get rid of him. Oh, we've never done that in Vancouver here. Of course we haven't. Um, <laughs> but I can tell you one thing, uh, 675 comments on your story, so it clearly struck a nerve with a lot of fans, um, and, and it's been a, a fun conversation. Uh, I did want to hit you on another uh, piece that you wrote recently, the best contracts in the NHL, Cap Court. Uh, you have Quinn Hughes and his contract as one of the best in the NHL. What makes it uh, that type of contract to you? Yeah, so, I mean, this is something where cap court is a, a gimmick I pull out, and usually the idea is, is this a bad contract? We're going to put the contract on trial. And I figured I'd, I'd go positive and flip it around, and I said, all right, is this a great contract? Not just merely a good one or a good value for the team, but from the team's perspective, is this a great contract? And, I, and uh, uh, you know, Queen Hughes was a bit of a tough call, a bit of a borderline one, but I, I ended up putting it in the great column, and, and it's just a case where, I feel like this is, uh, you know, an excellent young player, still young enough that there is some upside as a blue liner, uh, where you, um, uh, you know, you, you can expect just some sort of natural development and improvement. Uh, already, when you look at that cap number, just about right for uh, for an elite player, uh, for a guy who's potentially going to get better, should be able to uh, main at least maintain his current level. For years and years to come, not one of these guys who's already peaked and, and you're, you're giving them the big contract on the way down. We know the cap is going to be going up. We know that the, the percentage hits and all of that are, are, are going to get better as time goes on. I just really like that idea, uh, that deal from a Vancouver perspective. I'm sure they would love it to be even more years than it is now, mm-hmm. and that was kind of the, the one spot where I sort of wavered a little bit and wondered, you know, geez, even 
few years from now, are they going to end up having to pay big time and wish they had uh, they had locked it in even longer than they did? But for now and for the next few years, I think you got great value there at the, one of the most important positions. Well, and the the other the, the other big contract situation with the Canucks, and it's kind of similar to what you're saying, could happen with Quinn Hughes. It's happening right now with Elias Pettersson, where they signed him to a, a bridge deal coming out of his entry level contract, and now they're in a position where they're going to have to pay a lot. Even in those circumstances, though, Pedersen is such a good player. Like, do the Canucks have a chance to, let's say you're doing cap court the same exercise in a couple of years, is there a chance that the Pedersen contract could still end up being a great deal for the Canucks, given how talented he is? I, I mean, it, it certainly could. Uh, he's, he's a great player, and it's, uh, you know, th- this is one of these things where even even these days, you look at the way that the teams allocate money, and and very typically, you get value on the elite players. Even if you give them, you know, the the top of the market contract, uh, you still get good value out of that. It, it's it's rare that you look at a deal like that as a huge mistake. It's much more often the depth guys. I mean, you guys in Vancouver, you know very well it's the it's the three and four million dollar guys on the third and fourth line that could be replaced by uh, uh, replacement level players that uh, that really crush your cap situation. Um, yeah, I think Pedersen could absolutely be one of those guys. I, I will tell you, I am constantly surprised at some of these long-term deals that are getting signed by young guys. And in a lot of cases, it's the second contract, which doesn't doesn't apply with Pedersen. But um, you know, I'm I'm constantly surprised at these eight-year deals that come in, and you see the number, and you go, man, that's that is pretty reasonable. Mm. We keep waiting for people to reset the market. We keep waiting for somebody to, to, to sort of change the entire dynamic, and it just doesn't seem to happen to anybody except the Maple Leafs. That's, you know, my team, the Maple Leafs, is the only team where these players apparently really want to make sure that they, uh, they get the maximum dollars, and uh, you know, we've seen how that works out. Yeah. But everywhere else, it, it seems like you know, people are happy to, to, to take uh, eight years, get a good high number. Certainly none of these guys are are eating craft dinner for uh, for for three meals a day, but uh, it all it always feels like guys leave a lot of money on the table, and and that works out great for the team. Could absolutely see it happening in Vancouver. Um, we'll just wait and see how it plays out. Well, you know what? I think a lot of fans uh, out here, Sean, would say, "Good on Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews for getting theirs." Right? Good on them yeah. for knowing their worth. Yeah, you'll you'll love it right up until Matthew signs before Patterson yeah. that actually does reset the market. <laughs> Sean, appreciate the time as always. Great piece up at the Athletic right now. The five truths all NHL fan bases need to hear this offseason. Thanks for chatting with us. Right on. Thank you for having me. That is Sean McIndoe again. You can read him at the Athletic and follow him on Twitter at Down Goes Brown. Uh, yeah, there's nothing better than going back like to uh, you know 2014 or something and seeing who. Canucks fans were projecting to be the second line center and you know oh this guy's gonna be key for us five years down the road and that's not unique to Canucks fans no no, no. that is like, literally every NHL we team. were having that conversation about Jonathan Dolan yeah he's gonna be Elias Pettersson's like, winger like like Oldobin oh Goldie forgot about Goldie watch how could you uh hey the biggest example, literally, in Vancouver history, Nikita Triamkin. Nikita Triamkin, yeah. And at least, I mean, he actually played in the NHL. So I, same with same with Goldobin, right? But the, the guys who are, like, fifth-round picks and, are, and never get out of oh, the yeah. AHL, you know, but you're still projecting to be, like, key players down the road. Those are the ones that always that always crack me up. Uh, it is an Ask Us Anything Friday here. This one came in early. Shout-out to Alistair, the graveyard bakery worker, as discussed earlier on the show. Uh, if Vancouver got... An MLB or NFL team? Would you abandon your favorite team to become a die-hard fan of the Vancouver team? 
So one part of this, the NFL team part, is really easy for me. I guess I would call myself a Seahawks fan, but I'm like an extraordinarily casual Seahawks fan. I'm the world's most casual Seahawks fan. I don't okay. truly care. Like I'll root for them, whatever. It's so fun. like most Vancouverites, <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. But I don't. It doesn't like. It's not keeping me up at night. I'm yeah, not, like, you know, like getting prepped for the preseason or like, ah, it's whatever. They're good. They're good. That's fun. If they're bad, who cares? See, I I like that you acknowledge that because yeah. I would say 95 percent of Vancouver is that way. When they start losing, you abandon ship. That's yeah. okay. And That's, I don't. I don't. I'm not. I'm not making any pretenses about it. Like it is not. It's not a significant fandom for me. So okay. if they got an NFL, if Vancouver got an NFL team, that'd be easy. No question. Okay, that's my team now. 100%. Same with an NBA team, right? I never I never jumped ship to another team after the Grizzlies left. I love the NBA, but I don't, I don't have a favorite team. So if Vancouver got a team back, that would be an easy one. The tough one for me is baseball because I've been a Jays fan since before I can remember. That's a lifelong thing. And especially now... You know, obviously, I grew up a Canucks fan. Now, being in the media, it's a much different relationship. The Jays are my number, the team I'm like the biggest fan of, right? So, sure. for a Major League Baseball team to come to Vancouver, I would want to support it. I think it would be very, very difficult for me to just throw out being a Jays fan and forget that I'm a Jays fan. Yeah, we all have a hierarchy of, you know, the teams that we follow. They're not all equal to us. No. And what you kind of outlined there is a classic example of that, but... I'm kind of with you in that, right? The reason that you follow a team, why you've been following them, when it comes to... This is a great question, by the way. An awesome hypothetical. Mm -hmm. The NBA, I'm kind of with you, but I do have a team. I'm, I'm a Knicks fan, but the reason I gravitated towards another team was after the Grizzlies left. Yeah. I was looking for another team for like five or six years. It never happened. Went to MSG. Loved the experience. It was a god-awful team at that point. They're still not that much better, but they're a playoff team now. But if I... If a team came to Vancouver, I would probably lean Vancouver just because that's where it started, right? The Grizzlies. Baseball, though, like the Yankees are one of the biggest, the teams that I, I'm attached to going back a number of years. So that one, I'm with you. I probably would not be able to do that and switch to a Vancouver team. NFL, out of, what, the five or six teams I follow, I like the Dolphins, don't get me wrong. But You're if, saying good riddance. If I had to ditch one team that I follow... I'm not Dan Reacher. I'm not saying I'm going to do it. That's the one that's the lowest on the pecking order. Yeah. I mean, I get that. There hasn't been a lot of bright spots. And part of it is also attachment, though, right? Like, yeah. there's certain, like, Arsenal is my number one team of the teams I follow, and I don't work, you know, covering. That's the one, that's number one on my list. And then yeah. I got the Yankees. The Dolphins are a little further down the list. Well, and the thing is, yeah, the reason I'm a Jays fan, I mean, there's a couple of reasons. Like, one, my parents were huge Blue Jays fans, right? So, obviously, you know, you pass it along to your kids. And I'm, I'm indoctrinating my daughter now to be a Blue Jays fan. That's just how it goes. So, okay. there's, like, a familial thing there that you don't want to give up. And then, of course, I mean, they win the World Series when I'm six and seven. So, that that helps an awful lot, too, to cement your friendship wait, or wait, your wait, fanship. Wait. When you say indoctrinate, like, are you just, like, making sure she memorizes, like, Carlos Delgado's season? Uh, no, like, she's got like, a bow. Bichette shirt a okay, jersey, okay. and you know she uh she knows like Bo and Vladdy and George Springer and, and have you taught her the the who Dave Steve is yet or not, no, not yet no, okay. no, no, no that's still in the curriculum we're gonna, we'll, we'll 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 get to that at some point I'll break out the uh I'll make her watch like game six of the 93 World Series come here walk her through come it. here let me let me uh, put on an old Dave roll Stewart a tv game. in your room put it on while she's sleeping so like yeah. subliminal messaging throughout the night <laughs> this is Tony Fernandez <laughs> Love Tony Fernandez. Let me show you the hair of one Juan Guzman. Devon White. His jerry curl. The way he caught it close to his body. Oh, fantastic. Can't beat that. Can't beat that. Sweet swing of John Olroot. Yeah. That's true. All these guys. At what, at what point do you bring up the bus, though? 
<laughs> yeah. The, uh, let me tell you about this the, the Vernon Wells Alex contract. Alex Rios? Yeah. <laughs> Alex Gonzalez. They had a chance to trade Alex Rios for Tim Lincecum, and it didn't happen, and that was tough. That was tough for me, let me tell you. You gotta wait till the teen years yeah. for that conversation. This is the best of Halford and Bruff. Download the full show through Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the best of the day. I say you you the best. Halford and Bruff. Sounds like a potential backing track for an A Dog joint. Oh man, I wasn't even thinking about that, but now you've don't you, the don't wheels you hear to start it? turning. Don't you yeah. hear it? Yeah, yeah. There is definite jingle potential there. We'll see. Get in the lab. Oh no. Uh, it is Halford of Rough here on Sportsnet 650, brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. Uh, we are coming to you live from the Kintech Studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics. Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kentech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. It is, of course, an Ask Us Anything Friday, uh, so keep your questions coming in. Before we get back into the inbox and dive into some other Ask Us Anything questions, uh, you know, it's that time of the NHL calendar. Not a lot of free agent activity. We did see Matt Dumba sign with the uh, Arizona Coyotes not too long ago. But there are also some players, at least of interest, out there. Not guys who are going to come in and, you know, you're going to break the bank for and they're going to move the needle for you, but players who could theoretically help an NHL team. And I'm always curious at this point of the calendar, are they still out there just because everyone's taking time off work until September? Are they still out there because teams aren't interested? Like, what's going on? Who will sign a contract? Who will be there on a PTO, but you know, last year we saw the Canucks bring Danny DeKaiser in on a PTO. It certainly wouldn't surprise me if there's a couple of other, at least one name, if not more. I look at their roster and I can still see some needs, some areas where they could use some depth. So I think it's worth looking at the names that are still out there, Randy, and trying to kind of figure out, okay, who could make sense for the Canucks still to add? Yeah, and there aren't, like, huge names out there. No. A, a, a couple well, that have Well, there are, a... but they're old. Yes. Yes. There's a lot of elder statesmen yeah. in the, the UFA market, and I know we all focus on Jonathan Taves and Patrick Kane. Let, let's take those out of the equation. Yes. That's, right? that's not happening. That's not happening. However, there is a need for another center on this team. 100%. Um, if we're going to use baseball terms, like they, you need a, a utility infielder, essentially a, somebody who can play center and wing yep. uh, that you can pop into the middle if there's an injury or if you want competition there. Um, Niels Oman is a, a good project. He had a great season last year. He really showed that he could play at the NHL level, which I didn't think was the case. I liked, nope. you know, the, the, the physical attributes that he had, but he showed something last year where, okay, this guy can play in the NHL. He's not the answer, though, necessarily. You need some competition there. You need somebody who can provide 
a little bit potentially more offense. You too. just need depth. That's sure. what you need, right? There's going to be injuries. There's going to I mean, like heaven forbid Patterson or Miller is out of the lineup for a couple of weeks at a time, right? Then you're gonna be incredibly tested at the center position, and you need some of that depth to to compensate for that. And yeah, if you're one of your top two centers is down with an injury, you need somebody who's gonna be able to a bit of a platoon to help with the matchup role. Yeah. Because there will probably be a need there. So when I start looking at PTO options, um, a couple of names pop out and they're going to be players, and we were talking about this individual actually before the show started, but one name that I, I find intriguing because he can give you a little bit of offense too, it's on his resume, is local kid Danton Heinen. Yep. Right? One year removed from having an 18-goal season in Pittsburgh, and I know it helps when you're playing with you know, Gino Malkin and Sidney Crosby, but is there a little bit of offense in his game? Sure. You're not going to rely on it every single game, but if that's an option on the third or fourth line, I don't mind that. He can play down the middle a little bit. He's been mostly a winger in the NHL. Um, That's a player that I would definitely look at to say there's been interest apparently in the past. Uh, Previous regime was looking at him, a little bit of a utility player, uh, but is still young enough that you're not, you know, looking at a guy with a lot of miles on his body, right? Yeah, Danton Heinen is an interesting one. I think he could help this team as kind of that flex player who can move up and down the lineup. And, you know, if there is an injury and you need him to cover in your top six for a game or two, you don't feel terrible about it. You feel pretty good about having him in your bottom six. You would love it if he was a bit more established as at least a center option, right? Like, he does, you look at it, he doesn't take a lot of draws. No. I think he took five draws last year. Now, Maybe can he still do some of the other roles of a center? But I don't know if you're going to feel comfortable sliding him in for anything more than a game at the center position in a kind of an emergency situation. Yeah, break glass in case needed. The yeah. other thing with him, it's like intriguing option. But if you start looking at um, the confidence last year in Pittsburgh, he was getting around 10 minutes a game. So yeah. is this the time? Like one player that I would look at, I would give a chance just to see what he's got. Um, the local connection helps, but... You know, there's a couple other names as well. The and name, the name that comes up to me, and I like, I would have had this guy as a, as a July first target for the Canucks mm-hmm. potentially is uh, Pew Suter, right? Yep. And I know he doesn't. You know, I, there's a reason they would have prioritized Teddy Bluger over him because Bluger has that penalty killing and and defensive aspect and speed aspect to his game. But you know, Suter, he's a he's a legit center, right? Not an ace in the faceoff circle, but can hold his own, and he's got a little bit of offensive touch. And the fact that he's still out there again—that's when I'm—I was surprised when he didn't sign right away. A little bit. I mean, there's always people that don't find a spot at the table on July 1st. The fact that he's still out there, I am curious. You know, is he is he someone the NHL has soured on? Can you get him for basically a league minimum deal? Because I think a guy like that who you can play on the wing. You have a little bit of an insurance policy, kind of like an upgrade on Sheldon Dries, right? Where more of an offensive focus in your bottom six can potentially move up to play in your top six if you need it. I think he fits what this roster still needs very, very well uh, for the Canucks. Yeah, and he's one of those guys that we've talked a lot about here on these airwaves. I yep. know you and Drance have talked uh, even you know before the season was up during oh, the yeah. playoffs. That was a guy that came up a lot. Um I'm intrigued. I think if I'm a GM, I'm I'm looking at him not only in this market but many markets, right? Yeah. But the fact that a 14 goal player, and I understand, you know, still can play about 14, 15 minutes for you if if need be. I'm surprised he's still around. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there will be plenty of interest from a PTO perspective. Like I think oh, yeah. teams will be lining up. It's, he's going to be able to call his shot to see where the best opportunity is. And if you're a player looking at Vancouver right now, especially a center or somebody that can play the center position. It's a pretty favorable spot, right? Like, how many players 
do you potentially have to beat in training camp to get that roster spot? It's not that difficult. Obviously, there's stock in Teddy Bluger. You sign him to a deal. He's, you know, he's in that position. He's in a position of power, really. It's a show-me deal, but it's the regime, you know, that knows him well. He's going to, he, that spot is his. Yeah. Fourth line is open. Yeah. Fourth line is open right now, and Niels Oman's a good, you know, um, I think a, a measuring stick for anybody, but it's not going to intimidate anybody to say, no. hey, that's a spot that I could potentially take. I'm going to add one more name to the list. Um, and it's, yet again, I'm, I'm going with the geographical All right. uh, links here. He had a tough year last year in Chicago, but who didn't? Jajadaketa. Right? All right. And the reason I say that is, obviously, the Punjabi links. I'm not going to lie there. <laughs> but last year, he played the tough minutes in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And... Playing on that team in that role, the numbers didn't look great. Six goals, eight assists. You know, the number offensively, um, he was really a dash 11 in Chicago, which to me is kind of impressive on that team and having that number. But he is a guy that is able to take those matchups in a bottom six role. And if he's one of the guys that is potentially fighting with Niels Oman for that spot, and you can pop him on the wing, he can kill penalties, he's another option to have there. I don't mind that. Big body. Um, last year was a big year for him, too, coming back from a back injury. He played well down the stretch. That's another name I'd throw in the mix because of just the ability to kill penalties, the ability to... His ceiling is going to be probably a fourth-line player, no doubt about that. But is he a guy that, if there's an injury, that can maybe take some of those tough matchups every now and then? He's a guy that potentially could do that. Where a Heinen, I wouldn't have trust. In. Yeah, this name comes into the inbox, and it is an interesting one. And you know, former Canuck, so obviously top of mind. But Tyler Mott, who is unsigned, and it surprises me a little bit. Now I know the market for bottom six wingers is always tough, right? Because teams want to bring in their own players into those positions, and they want to you know give opportunities to guys that they've developed in house. But you know, Mott's been traded at both of the last deadlines, so teams do see now by for the to the Rangers both times, but. Teams do see value in Tyler Mott. And you look at his stats last year. I mean, he had eight goals and 19 points in 62 games. Like, for a bottom six player, that's perfectly reasonable production. And we know what he can do on the penalty kill as well and how valuable a penalty killer he can be. And I I look at Mott's recent career going back to when he really established himself in Vancouver. And, you know, again, like the track record of production for a fourth line type player is pretty reasonable. I'm a little surprised that Tyler Mott hasn't found a home. I know wing is not exactly a position of need for the Canucks and that might be the fly in the ointment so to speak here but again a guy who can chip in on the penalty kill who has a little bit of finish and you know that speed and tenacity to his game if he's still out there come training camp that's an interesting one for me yeah that that one and if you look at the Tyler Mott era in Vancouver originally remember this was a team we were kind of talking about earlier is they couldn't really get the puck out of their own zone. Yep. They were really reliant on that fourth line, and especially Mott being aggressive on the forecheck. But mm-hmm. when you don't have the puck, when you're not going into the zone with speed, when you're not controlling the puck very often, that's a tough, tough task. So the fact that Mott was able to play that well, given those circumstances in that environment, you know, I think it was really impressive for him back then. Now, going back to the wing, though, so many wingers on this team. Yeah, that's the thing. You need somebody who can yeah. who can play down the middle as well. And yeah. I think that's a prerequisite for any PTO. Sure, you're probably going to have a defensive need. You might even bring in a goalie for uh, some uh, texture suggesting Brian Elliott. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to Tyler Mott and another text mentions Austin Watson, those guys are exclusively wingers. Does this team need that? 
I don't know about that, man. Yeah, I don't know. It's. It, I think he could help, and I think he deserves a spot in the NHL based on what he's able to do. I think he'll find a spot in the NHL, but yeah, I don't know if the fit is there for uh, for Vancouver. In regards to that text, though, because we get this text, I feel like every day about are the Canucks tough enough? Mm. And Austin Watson, he's not a NHL heavyweight, but he's still like a, a yep. light heavy or a, a cruiserweight, whatever division you want to go with. Is that something the Canucks need to address heading into the off or you know the training camp? Because Dakota Joshua is tough, yeah, but he's not. You know, it's it's more of a aggressive forecheck uh, between the whistles. He can do that. Is that something the Canucks need? But see, that's what I want them to focus on. Right? Is the is the aggressive forecheck yeah, style yeah. of toughness a more than toughness. the yeah more than the hey this guy can drop the gloves if he needs to toughness and Dakota Joshua can drop the gloves but you know I look at Ian Cole and Carson Soucy those are two big bodies that they got on the blue line right and they're not again they're not guys who you look at as oh they have a mean streak and they're super aggressive but I think they can play with a little bit of that functional toughness so look if that player's out there and that might be one of the reasons that Suter by the way, is still on the market, right? He's, you know, 5'11", I believe, doesn't profile as that kind of tough bottom six player. But, look, if that if if there are more guys in the Dakota Joshua mold who they can bring in who have that kind of ability to play but also bring that aggression and that forechecking style, I'm all for it. But if you're just talking about priorities, they're only going to be able to add probably one name to this roster, sure. really. So I would much rather go center depth before I start worrying about toughness over anything right you know what I mean like I want that that kind of middle six or bottom six center who can slide up in a pinch that's the clear area of need for me the only other thing you could do is if you're moving bodies out though right if you're moving a player out if that surplus at wing to say hey we want to address toughness and in regards to toughness I agree with you I think functional toughness is something that all teams should prioritize but the Luke Shen experiment did show us something that that is still useful in today's game especially as you do have skilled players having somebody in the lineup who can play first and foremost. Yes. Who can play and adds that toughness, adds that accountability, and really, sure, a bit of an intimidation factor to the opposition is still needed in today's game, but you got to make sure that the prerequisite is not that they're tough only, that they have to be able to play at a high level. And if that opportunity comes up, I would look at a couple options, maybe on the back end, a um, couple of names out there, like Nathan Bolio, right? And a middleweight, super middleweight. I'm not sure the Canucks have really room to add another defenseman at this point in time. Yeah. But you can, a little bit more at the the winger position, probably the Watsons of the world, or like I mentioned, you know, Jajah Kata can play that role a little bit as well. Uh, 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Somebody brings up uh, Alex Edler. I don't know. I mean, I think it would be a feel-good story, right? He's still out there. That's right. Can always use some veteran presence on the blue line but uh I, I don't know if it's a fit at this point i'm not reporting anything oh but i can guarantee in my i think i think this is my opinion so there's gonna be twitter headlines no, in 15 no, minutes no. randy I'm, janda reports no no yeah, i'm totally posting this audio as a report <laughs> one point or another that's with randy alex edler has got to sign a one-day contract with the Canucks. he's got to do the jose, jose batista yeah. yeah so this alex edler question mark text at some point yes the guy yeah. is the guy is an all time great. Well, maybe maybe it's a PTO and yeah. then it, it leads into you know if you don't make the team it's a one day contract. Randy Jan reporting Alex Edler will sign a one day contract. With <laughs> Did the not Canucks. say that. Breaking news here on that. Halford and Bruff. If that to Randy doesn't happen, Janda. if that doesn't happen, that's a problem because he 
He has to. Like, come yeah. on, he's an all-time great. Right? He is. He's should uh, retire as a Canuck. He, yeah, that's an interesting idea. I hadn't thought of that, but uh, we'll see where that goes. Six fifty, six fifty. It is an Ask Us Anything Friday. Surrey Ryan will bring a dog into this conversation. Surrey Ryan says, "Ask us anything." What is the best one-off Simpsons character? To me, it's Hank Scorpio. The problem with the Simpsons characters is that so few of them are true one-offs because they, if you, if they have a good secondary or tertiary character, they bring them back. Mm-hmm. So it's a hard question to answer. I mean, Scorpio is obviously up there. The other one that popped to mind for me is uh, Frank Grimes. Who Ooh, died in yes. his episode. I believe you prefer to be called Grimey. Grimesy. Yeah. Grimesy. Because <laughs> yeah. so, that is a hilarious episode, and he that one makes me laugh every time. And he died, so he's by definition a one-off. Yeah, you know, Scorpio is usually the first one that I think of. Yeah. Um, Lyle Landley, I guess, for the uh, the monorail episode. Sure. That's a very one good one. One of my one. favorites. That's a very good one. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, yeah. Hank Scorpio is probably the one I would go for. He's just a classic character. He's also badass, right? Like, yeah. it's, which is great. <laughs> it's true, but but on top of he that, carries like, around sugar. He's in got his the pockets. flamethrower. Yeah. You know yeah. who would have been great if they didn't bring him back? Because I'm pretty sure they brought him back. Uh, Andy, you're, this is your file, but her, uh, her pal. He, well, he was in two episodes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, if yeah, they would have yeah, just yeah. stuck to the Danny first DeVito. one. Yeah. Yeah. If they would have stuck to the one, I think he's in that discussion. He would be in that discussion for sure. Yeah. Lyle Landley's a good one. That's that might be my favorite episode of The Simpsons, the yeah. monorail uh, episode. Conan O'Brien an wrote absolute that one. classic, yeah. Uh 650, 650. Here's one from Cole in Calgary. Ask us anything. Would you rather be a radio host on NHL League Minimum or an NHL player on a radio host salary? Uh first one. This is one of the easiest questions of all time. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I will take my incredibly easy job, yes. low stress job, on a massively inflated salary over yes. the incredibly physically demanding, high stress job of being an NHL player uh, at a much much lesser salary. That's an easy yeah, one. Yeah, I'm for not even gonna answer that. I think I think anybody in radio would take the first option, the former rather rather than the. Oh, latter. I get a raise. Yeah, I'll take that yeah, one. Please, I'll take that one. The other thing, like uh, I do, I've heard that there are uh, there are like psychological studies that your happiness isn't determined so much by how much money you make it's by how much money you make relative to your peers you know what i mean Mm. so like if you're the brokest person on a hockey team you're not going to feel good if you're the richest person at a radio station you just come in you lord it all over everyone every day you're gonna feel great (laughs) career goals man I, I feel like that question also does not understand the realities of being a radio show host like you clearly think we make a lot more than we do because an NHLer would be so ticked off on a radio salary. Oh yeah, oh yeah. No, I don't. It's not I, that close. It is not, and and presumably also like I mean, I guess in this scenario, I'm good enough to play in the NHL, so I'm not like you know actually at risk of death every time I step on the ice, yeah. like I would be as my current self. You know what I mean? So, but I don't think it's worth the. Like I don't think it would be worth the. I get it. Playing in the NHL is an incredible honor, and like I, I understand that side of it. It would be a thrill. I don't know if it's worth the risk to your physical health, though. If you're making radio salary, no, no, in the NHL, you need that money. Basic to risk, make it worth it. Basic risk assessment. Basic there. No. risk assessment. Absolutely. Uh, six fifty. Six fifty. We got this one here. Uh, unsigned. Ask uh, as anything. Andy, this one's for you. Will you ever schedule a show with Jingle Guest and do live renditions of your all your songs? No. I, I wouldn't do that to the listeners. That would be very, very immature of me. But Although I've no. come close. I think there was one show where we had three jingle guests in a day. And I didn't plan, we didn't plan it that way. Just sort of the stars aligned. And uh, we knew instantly as soon as that happened, like, we made a huge mistake. Okay, let me ask you this then. How about if you were to take it to, like, a local bar and alcohol was involved? 
Like an actual live show. Again, no, probably. I'm I'm not a karaoke guy at all. So that element of it would be uh no, I don't think so. I mean it would have to be a lot of alcohol. A lot. Sounds like a sales deal to me. Yeah. It would have to be you the Randeep, you know, fighting the bear at the uh what, what was that again? The 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 Seahawks uh what was the thing we had we were what? trying to there was there <laughs> was some, oh, it was this it was the Super Bowl party. Where we oh, were, yeah, that's we're, right. We're yeah, blowing yeah, it up that you're going to fight a Clayton bear. Public house, right? No? Yeah. Every time we mentioned the Clayton Public House Super Bowl party, we made up something that Randy would do there, and it just got so ridiculous. After a while, he was like, I had people coming up to me on the street saying, "Oh, so how much? Like, apparently, going to drink a keg by yourself?" I'm like, "Man, I got to listen to the morning show <laughs> like yeah, <what> <laughs> every ta- hour because yeah. they're they promising. About? What are these guys committing me to? Yeah, yeah. yeah. alcohol yeah. poisoning. Yeah. Meanwhile, Bick gets mad at me if I like say that he's going to do a segment on his show. He's like, "Why are you? Why are you just telling people that?" I'm like, "I don't know. You do this segment on your show every day." It's like that's for me to decide. This one texture. He's, he's not a believer in like, free what? promotion, is he? <laughs> this one texture with a great Simpsons poll: the host of the people who look like things, because it's such a quick little thing. Like maybe a nice candle every now and again. Yeah. Well, yeah, actually, no. Great poll. The other guy, he's not in the same tier, but the uh, the cat burglar. You remember him, the guy who? Uh, yeah, yeah. I yeah, think he was, was pretty funny. He oh. was uh, voiced by Sam Neill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There also, uh, was it the uh, the beer baron uh, episode? Mm, oh, sure, yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, that's that a very good. good one. Yeah, yeah, I like that one. See, we're getting some good polls here. Um, another question, uh, also from Cole in Calgary. I like this one. This one's an interesting discussion. Ask us anything. What would it take for JT Miller to get into the Ring of Honor over these next eight years? That's from Cole. In Calgary, and uh, it's seven years, I believe. But uh, yeah, he's got a lot of runway here to pad his resume and his as a kind of statistically great Canuck. He's scored a ton of points in his first four seasons here. I mean, number one. Now Cole does say Ring of Honor, not a retired number, so that's uh, you know an important distinction here. I do think still there has to be some element of playoff success, right? Like at the bare minimum, at least one deep run. Yeah, or even just like win. Two rounds, not even in the same year, right? But like, win around one year, then get eliminated. Win around the next year. Like, there has to be some level of this team feels like it's good and feels like they can at least go on a deep run. Otherwise, it's just the the, the memory of this era is going to be too tarnished. I think uh, to to reward players like that. What is really important when it comes to the Ring of Honor? It's what the fans think of you, right? Like Alex Burrows, classic example. Yeah. Awesome story. Worked his way up essentially from ball hockey. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, was a guy that was not really featured in any way early on in his career. And this worked hard. And the expectation was zero. And he was a first-line player. He was the most successful player with the Sedins. Yeah. But the expectation originally was zero. It's the exact opposite with JT Miller, where the expectation is high. So, yeah, you have to have team success. And on top of that, you got to be a point-per-game player. Like, that's the bare minimum, I think, when you're looking at, you know, maybe not every single year, but you're going to have to put up consistently 75 to 85 points. You have to have the statistics, and you have to have the team success, because not all Ring of Honors are, are kind of treated equally, right? Because the dollar value, the conditions in which you were acquired do matter here, and the fan base is going to judge you based on that. Right now, JT Miller is 29th in career points with the Vancouver Canucks. So you got to think he's kind of probably, he'd have to be kind of like top 15-ish. Like Alex Burroughs is top 16. So even though, you know, we we think of, we don't think of Burroughs as a big point producer other than but those still, years with yep. the Sedins, like he's still got 
close to you know top ten ish with with the franchise in terms of points scored. I'd still say top ten. Like I would go. You even, think JT Miller would have to be top ten? I think 10. so. I because, think so because that's kind of his calling card. And as you said, he's being produced. He's being paid to produce exactly like that. Yeah. Whereas like you know, there's a lot of great stories where that you know Canucks players were were drafted and developed. Yeah. Right. Like Juice is a classic example. Uh, Burroughs. There's there's a nobody believed in them or they were off the radar. Cool story. Worked their way up. Yeah. And once you're acquired in a trade and you, know, you sign this big contract and all that, like the conditions are slightly different. So I think the degree of difficulty is going to be a little bit more difficult for JT Miller. But top 10, like, if he puts up these types of numbers, I could see it. But does that happen without a run to the conference finals? But I also finals? think it matters, yeah, playoff success over the course of the deal and also how the deal ends. Because as much as he's under contract for seven years, right, like, if things don't go well over the next three or four years and all of a sudden it's looked at as a problem contract, he could still score, you know, whatever, 250 points over that time and rocket up the leaderboard of Canucks franchise history. But if it ends on a sour note, right? And this is kind of the Ryan Kessler situation. Now, Kessler is different because he was part of the best team in franchise history. He won a Selkie. So he has those elements to his resume. But you look at how fans have reacted because it ended on a sour note. And that's a big question. Bo Horvat is 10th all time in points as a Canuck. He's not going to the Ring of Honor because it ended on a sour note, sure. right? So that it, it's it's one he has to do a bunch of things on the ice, but then it also has to end well. Even he even if he produces really highly for the first half of his contract, if that back half is really poor and he really suffers yep. and it's a real weight and or anchor on the team, that will yeah. totally and then impact. He's, you know, he's bought out with two years to go yeah, or that, traded at fifty percent retained. It, it almost or something neg- like it that. almost negates the first half of the deal. Because people won't remember that, they'll remember how it ended. Yeah. Well, a classic example right now is what played out in Winnipeg with Blake Wheeler, right? Mm. Captain there. All-time leading point scorer with this iteration of the Jets. And maybe they have a a relationship that after five or ten years, it gets better and they have this whole coming, you know, back to to where it all started. But as of right now, the way it ended... I don't know if that's an option right now in in Winnipeg as him being welcomed back with open arms because it was something that got pretty messy near the end. So you're right. Like, that's a classic example of if it ends badly. um, Yeah, yeah, it almost doesn't matter what you do statistically if it doesn't end on a a high note or at least on a neutral note. This is the best of Halford and Bruff. Download the full show through Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.